Hello and welcome to part one of Grace and Truth. John the Baptist said of Jesus, He who comes after me has a higher rank than I, for he existed before me. Of the fullness of Jesus we have all received, and grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realised through Jesus Christ. When we talk about grace, we tend to start with sin. We tend to start with the problem. But that's not where the Lord started. He began creating a perfect man and a perfect woman, made in his own image. He put them in a perfect environment. And in that garden, God and man walked together. They spoke together. They shared their hearts. And they knew each other. And that was just the beginning. God planned a much more intimate and a much more grand at the same time future. A future that Adam and Eve barely understood. All of that seemed to be destroyed when Adam and Eve ate fruit they shouldn't have touched. All of God's plans seem to have fallen to the ground and the perfect home where Adam and Eve lived was suddenly no longer a welcoming place. In fact, they were the first people ever to be evicted, thrown out of their home and cast out into the world. <clears throat> ever since then, men and women have been trying to put that right and we have a simple way of doing it. We try and come up with a set of rules, a set of laws to live by. And we tell ourselves, if we can just meet these standards, if we can just obey these laws, if we can just live our life this well, then that will be enough. That somehow or other, that will get us back into God's good books. That will enable us to say, yes, we are worthy. We deserve to be back in there. Every religion, every philosophy basically says that in some way or other. There's really only one problem with that. It doesn't work. Never has, never will. God's standards are too high. It says in more than one place that God expects perfection. <clears throat> all the sacrifices, all the things that Israel did... Even if they got everything right, they had to be done over and over and over again. The absolute best they accomplished was to satisfy the Lord for a day, for a month, for a year. And every year the high priest had to risk his life and go into the Holy of Holies, hoping that the children of Israel had not behaved so badly that the high priest would never come out. But there is another way. There is another answer. If we rely on our own efforts, we're not going to make it. The truth is, we're never going to be good enough. But the Lord has always known that. And from the moment that Adam and Eve left the garden, the Lord has had another plan. When he looked at Adam and Eve and saw their 
hopeless efforts to make clothes out of leaves. The Lord did the only thing he could. He said, I'm going to do it for them. And he provided them with clothes. He provided them with food. And he has provided us with the answer to our problem. And that's what grace is. We can't make it. We can't get there. We can never re-enter the Garden of Eden or heaven or wherever it is we're supposed to be now. But the Lord said, you can't do it, so I'm going to do it all for you. And he really did mean all of it. Sometimes when I listen to Christians speak about grace, I get the impression it's like a Hollywood acceptance speech. Thanking our agent, thanking our parents, thanking our brilliant co-stars. But in reality, we know our own effort was responsible. Well, that's not what grace is. It's not about us doing the best we can and the Lord will fill in the gaps. Grace is everything. The Lord looked at our efforts, looked at our hopes, looked at our looked at our utterly hopeless attempts to prove ourselves worthy of him and said, it's all right, I'm going to do it all for you. And when you get marked at the end of it, when you stand before me, when it comes to judgment, you're not going to be judged on your own efforts. You're going to be judged by my efforts. That's what grace is. It is my efforts being forgotten. And thank goodness for that. It is my efforts not even coming into the room. The standards that I will be judged by are the standards that Jesus Christ lived. The standards that Jesus Christ lives inside me. And that means that not only am I saved, not only has he rescued me, but I can walk into the garden. I can walk into the holy place. I can walk into the holy of holies and know that what God sees is not my efforts, not my achievements, but Jesus Christ, his efforts, his achievements. And those are the reason that I can stand in the presence of God. They're the reason that every believer will one day stand in the house of God and not only be accepted, but be welcomed. We aren't just refugees escaped from despair and destruction, but we are sons. We are daughters of the King. We belong in the Lord's house. That's what grace is. Grace is what the Lord did for me. It's what he did when he put aside everything that was me, everything that was my effort, my accomplishment, my achievement, and said, here, take what I've got. Take what I've done. This is what you're going to stand up in. This is how you're going to measure up. That's grace. Hello and welcome to Grace and Truth, part two. I hope you enjoyed part one. Grace is the fun bit of grace and truth. Grace is the nice bit, the easy bit. But truth, well, that's a little more uncomfortable. 
does truth mean that there's only so much grace that there are limits on it that for all that grace is wonderful there's more to it than that I heard grace and truth described and truth is sometimes used to say that actually no you you've got to try harder you've got to put more effort in and I got a little uncomfortable so I decided to go and have a little look what is truth actually talking about what does John mean when he says that the Lord came with grace and truth and I found another word another translation for truth the other word was reality Jesus Christ came with grace and with reality now that sounds a little odd but think about it when Jesus spoke the crowds listened to him and they'd heard some of the things he'd said they'd heard them from the rabbis they'd heard them from the Pharisees they'd heard them from religious men but it wasn't the same when the religious men spoke it was ritual it was empty it was just a form of words there was no power to it there was no substance it didn't really mean anything but then they heard the Lord speak then they heard the words of Jesus and that was like nothing they'd ever heard for 400 years Israel had lived in darkness without a prophet without a miracle without any real revelation of their God and all their hopes all of their old laws all of the Old Testament had become a formula it had lost its power but when Jesus came something changed when the when the scribes spoke and they talked about freedom from captivity it sounded wonderful but it wasn't the experience of the people they spoke to but when Jesus came and he spoke about freedom from captivity he found men and women who were possessed by demons and he set them free he found men and women who were in bondage to blindness to leprosy to being lame to appalling illnesses and he healed them and set them free he found people whose lives were a complete mess like Mary Magdalene who must have been in absolute despair and when Jesus spoke his words were more than words he spoke with power he brought reality he gave those words meaning he gave them substance they changed her life when Jesus spoke to Mary the old testament is full of pictures the tabernacle is a picture of a of a true temple of a true house of the lord the original came to earth with jesus christ he was the true temple he is the true temple the true tabernacle when jesus said i'm the bread of life it wasn't just words he spoke and five loaves and two fish fed over 5000 people when he said i am the resurrection and the life he went and he faced down death and he rose again 
and he proved that death is not our end. When he said that he was living water, he meant it. The water that you and I drink, that keeps us going for a little while, a matter of days, and then we have to drink again, and in fact, usually a lot sooner than that. But what Jesus gives us, the life that we will live by, the life that is inside his people, that lasts for eternity. That doesn't pass away, it doesn't fade, it doesn't dry up, it doesn't evaporate. When Jesus came, he came with grace. He came to make us worthy to live a life with the living God. But he also came with the substance and reality of what was only words to everyone else. Without Jesus, all we have are slogans, rituals, empty phrases that keep us going perhaps for a few days, but don't really change or solve anything. But when Jesus came, he brought reality. He brought the substance. He brought true salvation. And he has given us eternal life that will never pass away. Hello and welcome to part one of Trusting God. Trusting the Lord is something fundamental to what it means to be a Christian. We're all told to do it. We all know we're supposed to do it. But I'm not sure that many of us really understand what it means to put our trust in the Lord. And so this series is intended to give us a little more insight into the subject and into how we can trust the Lord a little more in our lives. I thought I'd start with the first time that it's really a major issue. And this is the story of Abraham. Now, you may remember that Abraham is living in the land of Ur, somewhere in close to what is now uh, Iraq, near the city of Babylon, living quite happily with his father, with his father's family, with his relatives, in a fairly comfortable life. And the Lord spoke to him, and the Lord said, Leave your country, leave your relatives, and leave your father's house, and go to a land which I will show you. And I've always wondered how many times the Lord had spoken to people before Abraham. Was he really the first man the Lord said this to? Or had the Lord spoken to pharaohs, to Chinese emperors, to Indian rajas, to barbarians somewhere in the far north? Or was Abraham the first man the Lord spoke to? I somehow doubt it. There are too many places in the scripture where the Lord goes to somebody and is turned down and basically goes to whoever he's left with. And I kind of see him arriving at Abraham and thinking, well, nobody else was interested. Let's see what this man says. And for the first time when the Lord says, leave everything and go to a place that I will show you, suddenly someone says, okay. And the Lord is so excited that from that moment on, Abraham's descendants are going to be the promised, the promised nation. They're going to be the Lord's chosen people. It is an incredible response from the Lord. And all because one man said, yes, okay, I'll do that. And what the Lord asked Abraham is, 
absolutely incredible. Leave your country. So leave everything you know. Leave your job, leave your, your place of work, leave your home, leave your routine, leave the life that you're used to. Leave your relatives, leave your family, your friends, the people who your life has been centred around. Leave your father's house. Leave everything that you've been brought up to believe and to think. Basically abandon everything that your life has been about up to this moment. And do what? Well, the Lord is incredibly vague. All he says is, go to the land which I will show you. He doesn't even give much of a direction. I mean, you think at the very least the Lord would say, well, head west and, uh, you know, like some treasure map, go 50 miles this way, then look for this thing and then there'll be a sign and you'll know what to do next. But there's none of that. All he says is, just leave. Head for a land and I will show you where we're to go. I don't know if the Lord has already picked out the land. I suppose he probably has. He is. But... For Abraham, Abraham knows nothing. He hasn't the foggiest idea where he's going. He hasn't any idea really what the route is. He's just got to travel. The Lord has told him to leave. That's the only thing he's clear on. He's got to leave everything he knows. And yet, in some ways, that's the easy bit. Because, after all, Abraham has just heard the voice of God. Now, I'm assuming it's a fairly still, quiet voice. It's not giant skywriting in letters of fire half a mile high but he still heard the voice of God and why is that the easy bit well you've just heard the voice of God doing something unusual at that moment that's probably the easiest time to do it the problem is Abraham heard the voice of God on that day but if you look through the book of Genesis decades go by and he hears the Lord what three, four, maybe five times more. For most of his life, Abraham has to look back on that moment. He has to remember that the Lord spoke to him, and he has to hold on to the word that the Lord had spoken. And of course, doing that the day the Lord speaks, that's fairly easy. You've got the excitement of hearing God. You've got the stirring inside you. You've got the response. And the next day, there's a glow from that, perhaps the next day as well. But a week in, I suspect for most of us earlier than that, but let's give Abraham credit and say he's a bit special. It's a week before he starts to think, did I really hear that? Was that really God or did I just have too much pizza the night before? And that's a week in. Then he's a month in. Then he's a year in. Then another year, then another year. What about when he's a decade in and he's remembering just a few words that the Lord spoke to him ten years earlier and he's still basing his life and his decisions and what he does on those few words? Now that's incredibly difficult. And that's where Abraham's face really stuns me. To hear the voice of the Lord and respond, well, that's unusual enough. Most of us don't want to do that because if the Lord felt it necessary to speak to us, he's probably asking us to do something we don't want to do. But to then carry on without much reassurance, without, you know, a daily miracle to keep us encouraged, to keep us on the way, that's a bit special. And there's a reason the Lord chose Abraham and his descendants. This is a man who hears the Lord speak once. 
and that's enough to keep him going for years. And that sounds, I have to say, that sounds a little like the moment of salvation. Anyone who's had an experience of the Lord, how many years does that keep you going? How many years does that keep you alive? And yet, for Abraham, it's his whole life. That's not easy. All the moments of doubt, all the moments when Sarah says, Are you really sure, dear? Are you sure you're not just mad? And of course, eventually, there comes a moment where Abraham just goes, You know what? This is, yeah, I, I haven't heard the Lord right. There's definitely an overall promise, but I've got to do something to make it happen. I've got to, yeah, I've got to take charge here. And that, of course, is the moment when he decides to have a child with Hagar, his wife's maidservant. And of course, that's an absolute disaster. And the nation of Israel is still paying the price for it today. But even then, that's not enough to destroy his relationship with the Lord. And also, and thank the Lord for this, it's not enough for God to just say, well, that's not what I had in mind. You've messed up now. I'm going to have to find somebody else. The Lord overlooks his sin. Yes, there are consequences to it, but the Lord does not cast him out. It's not the end of the story. Abraham can mess up completely, and still the Lord comes back and says, no, I meant what I said, and I'm going to stick with it. And of course, we all know that in due course, Abraham has a son, just one son. All the amazing promise he had, I will make you a great nation. Um, all the families of the earth will be blessed through you. Your descendants will be greater than the sand on the, on the shore and the stars in the heavens. And Abraham gets just one son. That's all he ever really sees, one son. But at least the Lord has done something. And as long as Isaac's there, as long as Isaac's in front of him, that's an encouragement to his faith. I know the Lord spoke, and look what the Lord has done. A barren woman gave birth, and I can see Isaac in front of me. And as long as I can see Isaac, I know that the Lord spoke, and that I heard him, and that I'm doing what is right. Which is fine until the day where the Lord says, You know what? I'd like you to sacrifice Isaac to me. It's the most horrendous request. I'm leaving aside his fatherly feeling and that Abraham doesn't particularly wish to kill Isaac. This is also what he's been hanging on to. This is the fulfilment of his faith. Isaac is the proof that he's doing the right thing, that he's actually following the Lord, that he is on the right route. The right route. And the Lord is taking that away. And Isaac picks up the knife and walks to the top of the hill with, with Isaac to sacrifice him. And of course, the Lord intervenes. He doesn't lose Isaac. Isaac is never sacrificed. The Lord provides a ram instead. But Abraham's faith is unusual. Most of us, the Lord calls us to something. We start doing it. We see it build up. And as long as we can see success in what the Lord has called us to, we can hang on to that. That success is the proof that we are doing what the Lord wanted, that we heard the Lord and that what we're doing is right. And then there's a moment when the Lord asks, is it really me that you're still trusting in? Or is it the success of what I've given you? 
And that's a huge test. It's a huge ask because everything that our eyes depend upon, everything that our senses trust, everything that our natural man puts its trust in has to die. Because there's only one place that our trust truly places. What was the real guarantee of the promise of God? It wasn't the fact that Isaac was walking in front of Abraham. It wasn't the fact that Isaac was alive. It was the fact that the Lord was alive. It was the fact that the Lord had spoken. It was the fact that the Lord had secured his promise. And that is why Abraham is called a man of faith. Because he heard the Lord and he acted on it. Difficult enough in itself. He then followed the Lord despite the fact that there was little, very little reassurance, very little cover, very little help. And he hung on to what the Lord had spoken despite all of the failure, despite all of the years in which Sarah remained barren. He hung on to the word of the Lord. And then finally, when the promise of the Lord seemed to be fulfilled... He put his trust not in what was in front of him, not in his eyes and his ears, but in the Lord himself and said, no, I'll lay, out, I'll lay aside everything that the Lord has promised, if that's what the Lord asks. I won't put my trust in my ministry. I won't put my trust in my calling. I won't put my trust in the work that the Lord has done through me. It's the Lord himself that I will trust, and it's the Lord himself that I will depend on. Hello and welcome to part two of Trusting God. Uh, today I'm here with Luke West. Hi, yeah. And we're going to talk about uh, trusting God from the Bible in a particularly difficult way. Now, if you go back to the days of Israel, before Israel was a country, there are a bunch of slaves living in Egypt. And the Lord comes and rescues them from oppression, from slavery, from their children being killed, for heaven's sake. I mean, it's, it's pretty bad. And the things the Lord does are amazing. He rescues them. He brings them out of Egypt. Then they come to a sea so wide they can't get across it. The Lord steps in, divides the sea in two. They escape across it. Then the Lord brings the sea back together to drown Pharaoh's army. All of this is absolutely incredible. I mean, you've seen this. You've seen miracles and wonders beyond anything that most people will ever see or will ever hear. And when we read it, we can't quite believe that it actually happened. I mean, it's just too much. So, children of Israel, amazing miracles, unbelievable revelation of God immediately of course they're filled with faith and this lasts for what not very long i seem to recall hours not that long <laughs> uh, uh, long enough to get to the end of miriam's song perhaps yeah i, I reckon it lasted at least one song <clears throat> and this is serious faith mm. I and mean, jesus said if you have faith the size of a grain of mustard seed well they're, they're not that ambitious yeah but they take uh, a quick uh, journey they send some spies into the promised land, which everybody's really excited about because the prospectus on the promised land was amazing. You know, they've heard all these stories, <laughs> milk and honey as far as the eye can see. I mean, you know, this is this is yeah. what it's all about. 
It's, yeah. it's basically five star customer reviews. Absolutely. I mean, you should have seen the promised land on TripAdvisor. There's <laughs> nothing like it. But they send these guys in and they come back. And you know what? The five star reviews are merited. They haven't just been faking them themselves. Oh. Yeah, they're, they're, they're absolutely true. They're, they're absolute gospel, these, uh, these reviews. And everybody says, wow, that's incredible. And then the spies who looked at the promised land say, yeah, but there's a problem. There are these, you know, very, very big men, much bigger than us. And they know which end of a sword to hold, which, you know, we've been slaves for the last goodness knows how many years. I'm a little unclear on what you do with this sharp thing. What do we do next? That reminds me, it's funny, if ever I buy a book on Amazon or something and I look at the reviews, if a book has got... It's like it's all five star reviews and all one star reviews. I think it's probably quite interesting. <laughs> that is an interesting. Uh, and I think the report yeah. of the spies was a bit like that. Yeah, it really was, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. T- two five star reviews and two one star reviews and, and yeah. ten one star reviews. Yeah, yeah. It's incredibly rich, but it's absolutely packed with big angry men with dirty great swords and walled cities, which we can't do anything about because, yeah. I mean. Do you know how to build a siege weapon? Do you know what a siege weapon is? Do you know what a siege is? I mean, they are totally out of their depth. And in that moment, this is days, at most weeks, after the Lord has just destroyed the most powerful military on earth. And everyone goes, oh, well, that's it then. That that sounds a bit much. All that faith. Mm. One song, as you say. And the Lord gets a bit annoyed about this, going for crying out loud. What do I have to do? <laughs> yeah, it's a, well, what were you, I, I, I don't understand what you, what, I, what else could I have done to show what I'm capable of? And he says, all right, if you haven't got the faith for it, we're going to spend some time together in the wilderness. And of course, they left Egypt. Egypt was awful, but, you know, everybody ate just about enough. The promised land's wonderful. It's got everything you need. It's the retirement home of your dreams, as far as Israel's concerned. But they can't get to it. And the wilderness, well, I don't know how many wildernesses you've wandered around, Luke, but wildernesses are known for being short of the necessities of life. It's why they're still a wilderness. Uh, And I don't, have you ever been to a desert? Uh, not a real one. <laughs> not a real one. Even to a fake desert. <laughs> yeah. I'm gonna ask you about that later. Yeah. <laughs> we may have to do a separate podcast on where there's a fake desert. But they're stuck in the wilderness, and of course, everybody immediately starts going. Well, so what you like about Egypt? I mean, there was the oppression, there was the slavery, there was the baby killing. But at least we had enough to eat. Mm. At least there were the flesh pots. At least there were the flesh pots of Egypt. It wasn't all bad. You know, we should never have left. Um, These are people who've been complaining. I'm beginning to think that Pharaoh got a lot of bad press. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You know what? Perhaps it was all fake news. Yeah. And, you know, how are we going to survive out here in the wilderness? And you can hear Moses just going, oh, for crying out loud. How many years does this lot say we've got to be rescued from Egypt? They get out and they're all complaining. And the Lord says, it's all right. He says, to be honest, I, re- I did expect this. 
and I do have a plan. And he says, I'm going to provide food. It's going to come out of nowhere. It's going to, it's a, this is essentially magic food. And we don't use the word magic because it's not a Christian word. But <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're wandering around the desert and suddenly there's enough food for everyone to eat that's come out of nowhere. I don't know what word you're supposed to use, yeah. but this is miraculous. Oh, that's the Christian word. Miraculous. And everyone goes, wow, this is amazing. The Lord says, just collect enough for today. No more than that. Just enough for today. And everyone goes out and collects as much as they can because, you know, what else are you going to do? And after all, we've got to think about tomorrow. It's the sensible thing to do. It's good stewardship. And they all feast that night. They eat properly. Some of them probably a little carefully. You know, I'm, I'm not going to eat too much today because I've got to have enough for tomorrow. And the next morning, everybody gets up and it's fine because they all collected too much yesterday. And everybody get up late. Yeah, actually, yes, that makes sense. They all get up late because, you know, breakfast is already taken care of. And they open the pot and everything they've collected yesterday that they left has gone off. And everyone's, ah, what are we going to do? We're going to starve. Egypt. We should be back in Egypt. And they walk out of the tent and there's Tuesday's supply. And the Lord has taken care of it. But all he's done is taking care of them for a day. Now, I don't know about you, Luke. When I ask the Lord to get me out of trouble, what I'm really hoping for is a lottery win. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I want everything to uh, the end of time, all yeah. fixed. And I want a big lottery win, too. I mean, yeah. a million pounds used to be a lot of money, but that, that can't, you can get through that quite quickly these days. Yeah. I want enough that I never have to worry about this again. I want the Lord to solve all my problems from now till the end of time. That's all I ask. Is it so much? I mean, he can do that. And I, I'm assuming the Israelites weren't much better than that. Um, in fact, uh, yeah. I think there are enough verses, they might even be worse. <laughs> we'll never know, fortunately. <clears throat> but this is, this, is what, this is what they want. They want the Lord to take care not only of today, but tomorrow. And the rest of the week, and the rest of the month. And frankly... If you could just give us a supply that would last for the next 40 years while we're stuck in the wilderness, then we'd really have faith in you, God. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't oh. that really fill you with faith, Luke? Yeah, I see what you mean. <laughs> yeah. I think there's probably another word for it, but... Yeah. <laughs> it's a form of faith. Yeah, I have faith that I've got enough money it's, in the bank. Oh, it is absolutely a form of faith. <laughs> it's not. There's just no faith in the Lord. Absolutely. <laughs> It's it's faith in my uh, in, in in my investments, yeah. and the result is that every morning, every evening, when they go to sleep, the Lord has taken care of them for that day. But they still don't know about tomorrow, and they have to actually say, "Lord, I really hope you've given us enough for tomorrow. I really hope, I really have to trust." And this is not easy. I can trust the Lord once in a mess, and then the Lord takes care of it, and that's incredible. But when there's a new mess the next day, that's tiring. And it's, there's, actually, there's actually a level of exhaustion in that, just being worn down. It's part of life on this earth sometimes, just the exhaustion of the struggle. I mean, unless you're you know, so stinking rich that it doesn't matter, but most of us aren't in that unfortunate position. Yeah, I mean, they did uh, 
studies, didn't they? On they actually came up a few years ago with a, an actual equation for happiness. But basically, what it boils down to is, it doesn't matter how much you have or don't have, as long as you've got a little bit more than everybody around you, you feel great. Well, that's something to pray for. Yeah, it says a lot about what we're like, I think. It does. Yes, anyone who thinks the fall is a myth should should not read too many studies like that. But Israel in the wilderness, day after day, it's tr- it's not, I trust the Lord, he'll take care of my problems. I'm, trust- I'm going to trust the Lord for today. And frankly, tomorrow I'm just going to have to leave to the Lord. And I'll have to worry about that tomorrow. And yeah. And it's not a natural thing. It reminds me of, um, there's a line in Charlie Brown and an old Peanuts cartoon, which I really like, in which Charlie Brown explains his philosophy as being to dread one day at a time. And That's really good. <laughs> it is. But the funny thing is, for all that, the Lord supplied them 40 years in the wilderness, in a place where there wasn't enough to live on, where there wasn't enough to supply them, where by all rights they should have starved to death where they were driven away from all the best places or they had trouble anywhere there was a decent oasis there was already somebody there and there was trouble so they spend 40 years wandering around and sometimes it gets even worse there's just there's no water there's no food and every time their first instinct is we should the lord has let us down we should uh, we, we should be back in egypt it wouldn't have been, at least it wasn't so bad. We had uh, safety, we had security, uh, yeah. we knew where the next meal was coming from. Yeah. We knew that tomorrow was guaranteed to be a bit yeah. much like today, really. Absolutely, which is all I ask. Yeah. Yeah, everything has nicely partitioned and taken care of. Yeah. We, we were safe. We didn't have to worry. Yeah, and yeah, there was the old beating, but let's be honest. Yes, but <laughs> was that really old, that much worse? The old than beating this? to death. And yeah. We sometimes had to make uh, bricks out of uh, as coffins for our own children. But, but apart from not that... Not very often. Not, yeah, not very often. And it wasn't as bad as day by day. Now, to be completely honest, I don't, most of us can't survive like that. And I, for all that we look at them and go, look at how useless they were, how faithless they were. Well, you've tried depending on the Lord day in, day out for 40 years. Yeah. Uh, my, I have tried that. <laughs> yeah. It's not easy. Did, did you make it to Tuesday? No. No, it's, it doesn't. It's not natural to us. But there is something. And I think this is worth remembering. When the Israelites left Egypt, they looked at the Red Sea and just went, ah, what do we do? And the Lord had to reach out his arm. Moses' arm um, was carrying the staff, but it's the Lord who reaches out his arm and splits the water. And not a single Israelite got wet. Every single one of them walked across dry land. Now, at the end of 40 years, in which the Lord has taken care of them every single day, every single day for 40 years, and they get to the River Jordan, and it's the same experience. There's a huge river in front of them, and the Lord has brought them there at the middle of the flood season because, you know, it's the Lord. What else is he going to do? Yeah. I, I don't know why he does it, but, you know, this is. I'd like to make it clear. It doesn't matter how big it is. It doesn't matter how bad it is. I'm bigger than this. Do you know how many Israelites bravely walked into that water? How transformed they were by that 40 years? Four priests walked into the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant. 
four priests got their feet wet. And when their feet got wet, the waters divided. And that was enough for the whole of Israel to walk across. And we like to imagine, you know, if only we had faith like this, the Lord will strengthen us. The reality is we're fallen. We are weak. We will fail. And the fact the Lord saved us yesterday gives us surprisingly little confidence that the Lord will save us today. But four men walked into the river. Four men got their feet wet and that was enough. And that's the transformation of Israel. That, four, that there was enough faith in Israel that four men could get their feet wet. And the Lord answered that. And that's enough. And there's faith, the, the, grain, the size of a grain of mustard. It is that small and yet that was all it took. And 40 years daily experience with the Lord. Just a little bit of change, just enough that it moves mountains. And there's one last thing about that story I like to remember. So we've said, you know, there was every day they had to trust the Lord again. But that isn't actually quite true. Do you remember the, the, do you remember that occasionally there's something different, Luke? Occasionally there's something different? Yeah. On the, in the wilderness? Yeah. I do not. It's the Sabbath. Ah, yes. Okay. On Friday evenings. That's true. I do remember that now. Sabbath being a Saturday for our purposes. On Friday evenings, the, the food does not go off. There's two days worth of supply. The Sabbath is the one day you can go, I don't have to worry about today. And actually, for all that, you know, they went 40 years, the Lord built faith every day they had to trust him. We all need Sabbaths. We all need days when the Lord just says, no, today there's enough. Today, today there's not going to be any test. Today I'm not going to build your faith. Today is rest. And I am so grateful for the days of rest and there are I think of all the times when Lord how on earth are we going to get through this how are we going to survive but I am grateful in between those there are times when actually it was okay it wasn't too bad today you know I can get, a, I can get to the weekend and actually I don't have to worry about Monday we're pretty much mm. we're pretty much in, um, under control at the moment and they needed that too Without the Sabbaths, they would not have made it. Without the Sabbaths, they'd probably have gone back to Egypt. But every week there's one day when it's, you know what, it's not quite so bad. So trusting the Lord in the wilderness, 40 years, the Lord was there every single day. For all that trouble and all that strife, there wasn't a single day the Lord let them down. 40 years, every seventh day there wasn't, they didn't have to worry and at the end of 40 years they were so built up and encouraged that they could get just a little bit wet and know the Lord would be there and that's part two I reckon that was great